1: Hello and welcome to Baseball Barbicast, the only baseball podcast in the world thinking beyond sell the team. We're gonna buy the team. I'm Jake Mints. That's Jordan Schusterman. Can I borrow ten bucks? Let's purchase the Oakland A's.
2: It's gonna take a little bit more than that, but boy, does that look like a a uh, a entity that I would like to be a part of, like that I would like to invest in. Jake Mints. It is Wednesday morning. Last night we witnessed one of the stranger, cooler, most inspiring, most depressing. So many emotions coming out of the rever- reverse boycott. At the Coliseum, we are going to have our friend Kyle Madsen join us. He was in attendance. He is going to tell us what it was all about, but we have to lead with that. So we are going to talk about what we saw, at least on television, before we hear from Kyle what it was like in person. And then later on, we are going to talk about some other non-Oakland A's things. I know, we spend so much time talking about this team that still hasn't won its 20th game of the season, but they probably will soon, W7, baby. Uh, Later on, we'll talk Subway Series. (laughs) We'll talk talk Gary Sanchez and Aaron Hicks making the Yankees look silly. We will talk Carlos Correa and Gunnar Henderson and Corbett Carroll, and then a wonderful email, and then we will say goodbye, because we have to go to Omaha. But Jake, this is a Major League Baseball podcast, and we will talk about Major League Baseball. And you know where there's still Major League Baseball, Jake? Oakland, California.
1: Before we talk about last night, just a very brief overview of how we got here for anybody hopping into this story at this moment in time. It is very simple. The ownership group of the A's, led by a gentleman named John Fisher, who is the heir to the Gap clothing uh, company Fortune, which is still hilarious to me. He is literally Baby Gap, right? Like the owner is Baby Gap. Uh, he, the, the team has uh, decided to try and leave for Las Vegas, Nevada. In doing so, they have not invested in the team or the stadium to the point that fans have stopped coming to games, understandably. They're using that as an excuse to look for other options. It is also worth noting that yesterday, the Nevada State Legislature approved a $380 million public stadium package for the Oakland A's after that special session that happened last week. Some of those clips went viral. And so the timing here was very bizarre because it was the worst possible news, the biggest possible sign that the A's will actually move. That we've really had so far since the original announcement, and that was coupled with the day that had been planned for weeks in advance for all the fans to come to the stadium, voice their displeasure with the current ownership group, but also show the world and the baseball community just how passionate they are about the team and that the fan base is active and is there when they are invested in
2: yeah and I think uh, we will i I'm, I'm excited to hear you know from Kyle how it really felt in the stadium but but to your point, yeah, it was both the perfect time to kind of react to that and to feel that even stronger with that news coming out yesterday and the worst because it kind of started to set in more now there are still many more stages of this process, many more bills that need to be passed, relocation you know processes within Major League Baseball beyond just the Nevada government that are going to have to happen. But we know that this is where they are trying to go. And this does seem like where it is going to end up. And so to your point, for that to drop yesterday, to almost power this this movement even further, you know, maybe, maybe that news is what drove an extra three or 5,000 fans out yesterday. You know, like that's the thing. And it felt so, it, it came through on television, of course. And what we could not have possibly foreseen, as this is something that has been going on been planned, as you mentioned, for weeks, if not months, is that the Oakland A's would be coming home on this winning streak, setting up an opportunity for the fans to not just voice their displeasure and to wear a bunch of sell t-shirts and tell, you know, communicate on television and join together how upset and frustrated they are, which is all important. But that the Ace fans could also be Ace fans for a night and root for a team that was competitive, and who cares what they finished the record with, like that is just such an incredible kind of sequence of events that I'm so thankful for, and I'm sure they are as well. If
1: the Rays
2: had come out yesterday and Molly whopped Oakland into
1: submission in the third inning and won 14 to two, it would have been a very different tone mm-hmm. at the end of the game. Like, the fans are still mad and no amount of wins at this point in the season can fix anything, really. But if they lose 14-2, like, it's a, a an atmosphere of frustration. And what this was, I think Tim Keane wrote about this at ESPN, it was in between a, a wake and a party, right? Like, yeah. it was both of those things at the same time. It was a celebration and it was a mourning, mm-hmm. And that... Is such a unique atmosphere to have at a baseball game. I had buddies of mine who don't give a crap about baseball texting me this morning about it. It felt very like European soccer, right? Like, Fisher out. Like, sell the team. (laughs) Like, it's very Euro footy. In that way,
2: and again, like like I said, how we know the A's are still going to end up being one of the worst teams in baseball. But as the fans will tell you, they're smart. We we all know it's not the players' fault. The players are trying their best. They're being put in a position. A lot of these players that don't have major league experience, that it's just it's difficult to succeed against other teams with more resources, with more experienced players, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But again, the fact that we have guys like Hogan Harris, you know, and Carlos Perez, and all these these rosters, like the fans getting the opportunity to celebrate the players wearing these jerseys is cool because they know it's not these players fault they know that they're trying their best and even though that would have been true if they did lose 14 to 2 the fact that they that those players who might not get an opportunity like this again for the rest of their time this season or next season when it sounds like they're still going to be in Oakland is great because it's not the player's fault. And I'm glad that their hard work and their perseverance through this shitty situation that they didn't ask for is also being rewarded with the support of the fans. Like, that was also really cool. I know that that is kind of a much smaller issue than the larger issue at hand, and the fans will tell you that too. But that was cool to see because we know the players on these teams, like, that is not something that they necessarily wanted to to deal with.
1: And you know who else is perpetually frustrated with ownership and management? Baseball players. And so... (laughs) these guys behind the scenes are saying and thinking and feeling a lot of the same things that the fans are feeling. Now, the one difference I just want to highlight is like the facilities, like players love complaining about facilities. And I know players around the league are like happy about the idea of a new facility in Vegas. Like that is maybe the one difference, Mm -hmm. but as far as being mistreated and not invested in and not supported, like the players feel the same thing in Oakland. That Mm -hmm. the fans feel. They just can't really come out and say it as explicitly because they are being, you know, employed by the team. A couple other notes from last night. Two thousand twenty-seven thousand seven hundred and fifty-nine fans. Okay. That is three times more than the average attendance this season, Mm -hmm. which is just a really (laughs) remarkable number.
2: Yeah. Now, obviously, it was also a reminder, like, oh yeah, this is a massive stadium. They have a lot of seats that they could fill if they wanted to. Uh, but yeah, you know, most biggest attendance of the season ahead of of opening day uh, by by a couple thousand. And honestly, you know, it's possible it was more than that. I I mean, I know I don't know how exactly that they were. I, I, I would love to understand more the exact science behind how they announce uh, attendance for major league games because oftentimes it's the opposite situation. You look around, and you say, Wow, there's 3,000 people here. And they say, Announced attendance is 8,142. And you're like, That is not true. There is no way that is possible. In this case, it was like 27,000. I don't know. It might be more than that.
1: It was certainly a lot of people. And what the A's, the A's did something very bizarre a couple of hours before first pitch, where they announced that they were going to donate all of the ticket proceeds from this game. This is the team, okay? Announcing that they're going to donate all the ticket proceeds to the Alameda County Community Food Bank and the Oakland Public Education Fund, which is great. Community investment's great. These big teams donating money to where they are is great, whatever. But they announced a specific dollar figure, which is weird, because which was, again, eight hundred and eleven thousand one hundred and seven dollars this team is basically saying if we sell 27,000 tickets, we make nearly a million bucks. Probably more than that with like food, drink, and all this other shit, right? Parking, whatever. Like we make
2: a million bucks a game. Mm-hmm. And it's like, okay, then invest in <laughs> the team. Yeah, it's like, why is your payroll $40 million? Like it was this thing where it's like, okay, good. Now, what is the, to what ends are you winning a PR war at this point? Because sure, it's nice. Obviously no one's going to say it's bad to donate $800,000 to the city. That's great. But if this is your way of saying like, well, here's a nice thing we're doing on our way out, like weird and also admitting how much money you're making anyway, which we all could have inferred regardless is ridiculous, which also brings me back to another point that I want to make. And maybe we'll get into this with Kyle a little bit, but it was just a reminder of how little it takes for fans to fucking care, right? Like to, to give them, and I know this was a, a complete unique situation, but again, I, I keep thinking about the Reds, right? The Reds are another fan base who is not happy with their ownership for reasons that make all kinds of sense. And at the end of last season, like that's really what it felt like we were heading towards is a similar kind of thing. They had two months ago, they had the lowest attendance that they've ever had also against the Rays on a Monday night or on a Tuesday night. Like that just happened this season. All it takes is just getting a couple players that you have actually cultivated and developed and brought up together. And I know Ace fans was like, yeah, well, we've done that and we've traded them away and that is a bigger part of the problem. But the point is, is that It doesn't take a lot. Like fans want to care. They want to go to the game. You just have to give them the smallest inkling that you are pushing towards something, that you are building something, and that you can bring up one exciting young player, exciting young pitcher. we even felt that for an ounce when Mason Miller came up and threw a hundred miles an hour. Like it was all these small little things. It's doesn't take that much. We're not for, for fans to desperately want to care. And so that's what makes all this so sad, right? That's what makes all this so frustrating and infuriating, but also cool to see for at least one night.
1: One final thought here, right? What does this actually accomplish? Because in a, Bubble in a moment. It is remarkable. It is impressive. It is commendable to the grassroots community organizations in Oakland that put this together, that raised the money to give away how uh, eight thousand T-shirts that said "Sell on them," right? To get all the people quiet. There was the moment where, because they've been in Oakland for fifty-five years, at the beginning of the fifth inning, they had everyone in the stadium silent. Jose Siri hit a double, and then they broke in to sell the team chance. That were deafening, right? That level of, of organization is remarkable. It's impressive. Okay, but what does it actually do? Are the, the A's are leaving? I have reached a point now where, like, I know there's a lot more hurdles. This team is going to Vegas, right? That is, in my mind, like that is happening. So, what is this doing? This is showing other ownership, potential ownership groups around the country and around the world that baseball can work in this town if they are invested in. And so I joked earlier about the sell T-shirts. They should be really saying buy T-shirts because what Ace fans are saying, hello, we're worth, we're worth it, right? Like whether it's – Fisher is not going to sell. That's not happening if they get the stadium in Vegas, right? Mm-hmm. But they're hoping that someone else comes in and, and puts baseball back in the city because the city deserves it. I, that was just my takeaway, man. I was just so impressed. Mm-hmm. Like cap, the gears of capitalism will, will win. Usually, right, in this society we participate in every day. But for a day, for a moment, for a glimpse, for a fleeting evening, A's fans and their passion and their joy and their unity Mm -hmm. created something that they'll have for the rest of their lives. Mm -hmm. And if it all falls into place like a fairy tale, baseball will be in Oakland once the A's inevitably leave.
2: We'll see. We'll see. All right. Well, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, uh, Kyle Madsen will join us and give us an on-the-ground report, give us a little bit more color uh, regarding what it felt like to be in the Coliseum last night. Uh, So we'll be right back here on Baseball Barbecast.
1: This is former PGA Tour winner Smiley Kaufman, host of The Smiley Show, a SiriusXM podcast. You want to know what I love about golf? I get to talk to some really cool people. I get to walk the fairways of the best courses in the world with the best players in the world. And I get to share it with you every single week. Listen to The Smiley Show right now on Stitcher, Pandora, Apple, or wherever you get your
2: podcasts. That's Smiley, S-M-Y-L-I-E. And welcome back to Baseball Barbercast, our conversation on the reverse boycott rolls on with someone who was there doing some reverse boycotting himself, Mr. Kyle Madsen. Kyle, thank you so much for joining us. Welcome to Baseball Barbercast, my friend. This is one of the best days of my life. I'm not going to lie. You guys did such a good job with this pod. I'm so happy to be on. You are way too kind. Kyle, uh, before you say nice things about us. Please establish your credentials. Why were you there last night? Why was this an important night to you? And uh, I guess, you know, what's the day job? So people sort of know what
0: you're about. Man. Uh, Well, right now, my day job is I write about and podcast about the San Francisco 49ers. But I love baseball. Uh, Baseball is my favorite sport and, and always has been. I grew up going to games at the Coliseum. And last night was about showing baseball and just kind of showing the world that fans aren't the issue in Oakland and I've believed that for, for a long time you know going back to when they traded Mark Mulder and got this whole uh, cycle of trading stars going and it's really clear it's been an ownership problem and and I wanted to be be part of the the you know almost 28,000 that were there to to show that so give us a bit of background like on how this
1: day came about where did you first hear of the reverse boycott and how do you think it grew to the point that, like you said, 28,000 people were there?
0: I I first saw it on on Twitter, like back at the start of the year. And to be totally frank, at first, I was like, this is a dumb idea. Why are you going to give money to the guy who's taking this is that what are that's the that that's opposite, like that's counterintuitive, right? And then it was kind of there and you'd see a retweet of a post about it every once in a while. But I was so worried that it was going to be ten thousand people, and they're playing the best team in baseball. Like the Rays are loaded, and like okay, cool. They're going to go. They're going to go get housed by the Rays, and ten thousand people are going to show up, and it's just going to make us look really bad. Uh, but then, in like the five days leading up to the game, it was all over the place. And there's news outlets covering it locally and nationally. There's a bunch of people who I didn't even know liked baseball. On social media, that you know, talking about getting their tickets and they're giving away tickets and local radio stations are giving away tickets. So in the last kind of week, it ramped up to a a new level. And I think that's why there was there was such an incredible turnout.
2: And I don't think this is entirely because of it, but we already talked uh, before we, we had you on uh, the confluence of this winning streak kind of made this bizarre situation even more special. And I know that that's not as important as the larger issue at hand, of course. But it was cool to me. What was so cool is that you not only got to go voice your, you know, opinion and your feelings and your emotions and what this team means to you as fans just in general, but also like you got to go be, you know, rowdy, badass Rays fans for a night. Like that, that seemed to be like a a bonus on top of it, that, that as you said, you could have never even anticipated that even with the six games they had won in a row going into last night.
0: Yeah. The Rays beat them 11 to nothing on consecutive days earlier this year. (laughs) (laughs) That's kind of, that's kind of what I was, I was a little bit worried about. And frankly, if they get smoked last night, it doesn't go it doesn't go the same. I think people show up and it's loud, but I mean, from the first batter you heard it, the energy was super high all night. And then they go down a run and it wasn't like, "Oh, they're going to lose." If they had lost eight in a row and they gone down by a run, it would have felt like they were down 10. But they've been winning and they go up one nothing or they go down one nothing and then they make it 2-1 and at that point it felt like they weren't going to lose. And that's part of – that's, I think, part of the reason the energy was so high, like you said, was it was this feeling of, hey, this team's not going anywhere. There's no delusions. Nobody in that stadium thinks they're going to the playoffs. <laughs> they could break the – I was thinking about this last night. They could break the Guardians' winning streak and still be like 15 games under 500.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yes. That's yes they at. They well, and that's I. I made this this point uh, on on Monday's show where it's just like the most amazing thing about their five game winning streak at that point is that it it further highlighted that they were twelve and fifty. They were twelve and fifty. <laughs> like like this is that's it's that's not a record a major league baseball team should have. But here we are. And but to your point, I, I feel like it made it all the more special, and and, and that translated on TV also. Uh, But, Jake, go ahead. Well, I actually want to know about what wasn't on TV. So I want to know about the parking lot.
1: Because if you've ever been to the Coliseum, (laughs) it's a big-ass parking lot. Like, that's a parking lot. It's a colossal parking lot. And it seemed like the energy, like, in the stadium, the team can control things a little bit. Mm -hmm. Outside the stadium, they have no control. Zero Mm -hmm. zilch. So describe to me what the vibe was like in the parking lot before the game.
0: It felt like a playoff game. And I thought that, so I was on, so I took Bart in, that's our local barrier rapid transit, our train. And I took Bart in. And when I transferred to the train that was going to the Coliseum, it was all green. And I've never seen that. It's like three hours before first pitch and that already, but nobody wanted to be like loud and rowdy on, on the train. But as soon as you got off and you were walking across the ramp to get to the stadium, there was just like a palpable buzz. And then the 68s, the group that's that's, you know, kind of behind the grassroots effort to keep the team here in in Oakland uh, had a big tailgate out in the corner of the parking lot. And it felt legitimately I, I keep saying playoff game, but that's that's what the atmosphere was like again two three hours before first pitch. It's just people ready to be loud. People ready to show their support. People, Ace fans have been dragged for so long because, I mean, of course, people aren't going to know what's going on with ownership and the team trying to move. Like That's not something that somebody in Pittsburgh or Cleveland gives a damn about, right? Mm-hmm. So the that opportunity and the support from baseball fans around the league and, and nationally, uh, I think really got people up to, to, to party. Because you have a lot of people being like, lol
1: empty stadium picture right right and right there's context behind why those pictures exist but twitter and social media is not a place for context and sophistication and nuance as we know <laughs> um were people in the parking lot mad like was it were people i'm sure people were frustrated but was there anger
0: yeah i think so not outwardly towards each other like it was very cordial and it was it was beer and substances and um you know just a normal tailgate it was people having a good time the jerseys it, weren't the only thing that was green am i right <laughs> yeah no that's a great point yeah that's a very good way to say it. <laughs> um yeah no there but there was there were signs like like actual like cardboard signs uh that weren't super nice and that was like there was definitely vitriol like you heard sell the team was the chant for for most of the night, it's not, and that's not a that's not a. Hey guys, could you maybe do this? Like people were pissed, and I, I I think there was on top of the energy of seven wins in a row and wanting to keep the team here. I think there was definitely some some anger and frustration being let out by people who either have or who have not been to a game in the last you know ten or so years.
2: Well, and another part of it that of course you see the people with the jerseys with all the former A's that not that long ago. You know, and are now starring on other teams, and that's been part of the part yeah. of the frustration is is they have built up these teams and then torn them down on purpose. And they're not yeah. the only team that has has done that. I mean, <laughs> the Rays in some ways have done it a lot more successfully, but it was also kind of wild because. It was four years ago, these two teams were in that one-game wildcard. There were 54,000. There was double the number of people that were there last night uh, at that game. And I know Oakland ultimately lost that game because Yandi Diaz was like, hey, guys, I'm
0: actually one of the best hitters in the world. You that guys just brutal. don't know it yet.
2: Um, I, were, you, were, you, were you there for that? Were you,
0: were you at that game? No, I was in Hawaii for that. Ooh, okay. But I was set up at a bar on the beach. Is it, I, so I'm at a bar on the beach, and I'm ready, I'm ready to take off into the ocean. I was so confident the A's were winning that game. I was like, "This is the year. They're gonna figure it out. This is a really good team." And then uh, Mania falls apart. And by yeah. the fifth inning, I was like four Jack and Cokes deep, and just went back <laughs> to my room. I was like, "No beach for me tonight. I gotta, but, I gotta get out of here."
2: <laughs> so I, I apologize for for harkening back to that. But the reason I wanted to to mention that, and even you know the goofy twenty twenty postseason, obviously the fans aren't involved in that one. But like, right. it was a reminder to your point of feeling the like playoff game. We've watched. A's playoff games in this dumpy stadium multiple times over the last decade. Like, we know what it looks like. We know what this fan base can be. And that is what it was also a great reminder. And it helped to your point that it was this close game against the best team in baseball with this winning streak. And that also felt important. And Now, the big question, and we sort of talked about this before we had you on is to what end, right? This is mm-hmm. actually going to make a difference or whatnot. But I'm just glad they had the opportunity and you fans like you had the opportunity to, to do that and to feel that one more time, because what it felt like was also one last opportunity to do that when the team has been, you know, completely, you know, ripped down to the to like. Absolute studs. Mm-hmm. That it looked like. Oh my God, we're not going to have a reasonable team to cheer for until they're gone. Um, Is it? Let me let me ask this. Is it there? Was it therapeutic? Do you feel better today about
0: baseball in Oakland than you did a day ago? I feel good about what happened, but again, I know the reality of this. I'm not dumb. People aren't dumb. It's not like we went. Oh hey, twenty seven, seven fifty nine, or whatever the number was. Showed up. There's they're not they're not moving anymore. Like <laughs> John Fisher doesn't care, right? They, like he he's
1: not seeing see the parking lot. is being like, you know what? Yeah, <laughs> this is yeah. great.
0: Yeah, like it was. They don't they don't give a damn, and that's fine. But the goal was to show that this was not a. I mean, it, well, the goal was to get John Fisher to sell the team, but that that obviously is not going to happen. So. The The bigger goal was, hey, there's fans here. This is a market that can hold baseball. Like, look at the 1970s. Look at the 1980s. This is a team that sold out that stadium, by the way, the same one, mm-hmm. sold it out and had 2 million plus fans a year and had the highest payroll in baseball. Like, it's a viable baseball market. There should be baseball here. And that was the thing that kind of struck me the most last night is, I don't know how you watch that on a Tuesday night against the Rays in the middle of June for a team that went in 18 and 50 and you watch that energy and you watch how people responded and go, Oh, this is not a place that baseball should be. That's, that's ludicrous to me.
2: Yep. Cause people want, they want to care. They, yeah. they're not asking for much. They're really yeah. not asking for much. They just yeah. want to give you a reason
0: to give a shit. They need, they do need, so they need a new stadium, right? Like It was 28,000 there last night. That place is not equipped. The A's were not equipped to have 28,000 people there. I did just, they weren't. And that, that was half of the capacity without Mount Davis open. So that place is just not built. They do need a new stadium. But going to Las Vegas, I don't think, and I, I don't, I, I mean, I'm, this is totally guessing, and maybe it's my, my bias, but I just don't think that you're going to get the environment in Las Vegas that you got last night in In the middle of June, with a bad team, if they invest in this team and they and they get a stadium that that the casual fan who may or may not be a diehard, who may or may not know who Ramon Loyano is or or you know whoever it, it at least wants to go to and at least wants to be part of so mm-hmm. and that's, that's
2: yeah, and that's what when Jake went earlier uh when Jake went earlier this year and uh, we went to a game we we talked a lot about how. Because this is why the stadium is such a big deal, is that no one wants to go because it's fun to go to a baseball game there, right? Mm-hmm. You do have to give them some reason for casual people to think it's cool and fun and enjoyable and easy and pleasant to just go to a ball game, even if you've never heard of any of the players. Because that can still exist, even if the team sucks. That is still possible. We see that in other markets. You can do it, it is a, it is a thing, it is a sustainable thing if you actually try. But because in fact, of not, it's it not is not happening. It is all the Rockies do. That's <laughs> <laughs> what
0: is happening every day in Colorado. Like, there's versions of this that exist. My wife and I went to D.C. for our honeymoon. And I was like, if I'm going to D.C., I'm going to a Nats game, right? I went to more Nats games than I went to A's games last year. It's soft boycott for me in, in 2021. uh, But, or 2022, but it's the same thing. Like, at Nats Park, you can pull up on the Metro and... Walk up to the stadium and as you're walking up, there's bars and restaurants and it's a whole downtown area. That's what we've been wanting in Oakland. Like there's a there's a vibrant community in Oakland waiting for something like this to to happen and waiting for reasons to go support it. And the Coliseum is not conducive to that. You got to drive in, you got to pull up uh, into that huge parking lot it's not like you can park nearby and go to dinner and then walk up to the stadium. It's nothing like that. It's a, it's a, the baseball game is the event Mm -hmm. and that's just not, that's not conducive to drawing 20 plus thousand uh, a night in this Mm -hmm. day and age.
2: Yep. But also it is, it is also about the product on the field and it is about that. And, oh yeah, and I will say, and and as, as we've said many times, like the players are being put in a position to fail. You're putting a roster together of guys who most of them have not been in the major leagues competing against teams that are of course loaded with all stars and whatnot, Uh, but it's still baseball. And that's why you can have nights like last night happen. Uh, Last question for you, Kyle, what will, what will kind of sustain? Um, I know I'm sure you had a fair number of, of alcoholic beverages last night, but (laughs) of what you will of what you will remember the clearest, what will stand out? A moment in the game, of uh, a sign that you saw, a chant was it? Whether it was the, or the non chant, you know the silence in the fifth inning. What will kind of stick with you, uh, moving forward? As as the saga is certainly not over, but that night will probably stand on its
0: own. And the fact that it was the engagement from the fans that will will stick with me. It was first batter of the game. Um, you know, I, I said it was the most exciting three unassisted of all time. Every time there was two strikes on a batter, people were standing up. Um, you know, they Brent Rooker doubles and, and ties mm-hmm. it. It was like, they won the world series in there. Like the place was shaking. It was so loud and it was half full, you know? So that, that is, what's gonna, gonna kind of stay for me mm-hmm. is, is the fact that it didn't die out in the third inning. People didn't get bored. People didn't go, okay, I'm here. I wore my cell t-shirt. Let's go home in the fifth. It was everybody stayed for nine innings. Everybody was engaged. Everybody was loud. And and that's... that I, I was really proud to be an Ace fan last night.
2: Yeah. And that's, that's why any of this exists, right? Is because the fans and because fans do give a shit. And even if you can give them something to give a shit about for one night, because mm-hmm. Hogan Harris, through the game of his life...
0: Unbelievable <laughs> um, Hogan Harris, bro. Yeah. G-
2: Oh my God, God! Bless right. I mean, holy <laughs> shit! Right. I mean, this is this was the, the the blueprint all along, right? Fuji to Harris to May,
0: game that's, over, dude. In spring training, if you're drawing it up, that's how it was supposed to go. <laughs> oh my God! Hey, shout out and to so, Fuji too. I, oh, I, I, Fuji. It, and let, let me tell you,
2: I am. I I will believe in Fuji until they. I mean, I know he's maybe has the worst command in the majors, but holy shit, his stuff is good. That was so <laughs> cool to watch. He has crazy, 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 crazy stuff. And also, I mean, again, another final legend. Awesome for Trevor May, right? Trevor May, a guy who maybe doesn't necessarily have, you know, rooted in Oakland ties. But we know what he's been through um, this season, of course, on the field and off the field, um, being on the IL uh, for a while uh with dealing with you know anxiety issues and mm-hmm. Trevor made one of our favorite people in the game and to have to see him have that moment is just was freaking awesome um well and, just and that ninth and es- inning, yeah
0: and especially since in that in that game against the Brewers on was that Sunday where he he really struggled he yeah. came in and I walked four straight guys or mm-hmm. whatever it was and mm-hmm. and and got taken out in the ninth of a of a game that was eight to three um having him come in and, and shut it down was was really cool I agree yep
2: um, all right, Kyle. Well, thank you for for kind of painting a picture for us. Uh, we know that there are. I mean, we we've heard from all kinds of A's fans, as Jake said. We've heard from people that aren't even baseball fans that were kind of uh, inspired and uh, noticed what happened in Oakland last night. So I'm sure it's something you'll always remember. And whatever happens next with the A's, you will you will always have uh,
0: June 13th with that uh, victory. Hogan Harris. Hogan, Hogan Harris. Hogan Harris. Me and my Hogan
2: buddy Harris.
0: <laughs> me and my me and my buddy Randy. I've been trying to figure out what. I'm gonna do if the A's leave, like what I do fandom wise, because I'm not rooting for a for a John Fisher team. I'm I'm just not. So me and my buddy Randy have been. He's a he's a disgruntled Cubs fan. We're we're deciding what's gonna be quote unquote our team. So we've had our Padres right now. We've got our Reds. Mm. We're gonna hey uh, Reds. We're just bopping around the majors right now, figuring it out.
2: Yeah, yeah. Reds are an interesting one where it's like a lot of fun stuff happening, but you're still not gonna be happy with ownership, Uh, right? (laughs) Yeah, totally. Running into the same problem. right it's like do i want to pick the teams that the owners are spending like crazy but the team is still a mess like what what is going to make me feel better that is a that is a great existential baseball fan question that you are going to have to figure out i wish you luck i wish you luck kyle thank you for joining thanks, us guys. you can follow kyle on twitter kyle a. Madsen. all kinds of uh, photos videos from last night definitely encourage you guys to check that out but thank you for joining us on baseball Barbercast, kyle we'll, we'll talk to you again soon man
0: thanks guys
1: And welcome back to Baseball BarbaCast. I'm Jake Mitz. That's Jordan Schusterman. Enough about the Oakland A's. We spent too long on a team with 19 wins. Let's talk about the big market of New York City. The Subway Series, a little two-game amuse bouche, kicked off yesterday with the Yankees winning seven to six in a battle of reeling, bizarre baseball clubs. This game was mutually assured destruction. Very few people left the stadium happy. Luis Severino looked like crap. Anthony Volpe did look good. Drew Smith got tossed for having too much goop on his hands. Max Scherzer with like a four or five to one lead kind of lost it a little bit. No one's happy this morning in New York City except for Vegas Golden Knights fans living in the Big Apple. I was going to go to this game yesterday, Jordan, but in a bizarre, ironic twist of fate, the uh, A, B, C, D, and E trains were not running, mm. and so I didn't feel like schlepping my way out to city field another way. The subway what is down you... series, the subway is not
2: running on time series. A,
1: a very appropriate
2: uh, yes, as we mentioned, you know, it's just a two game series, and both of these teams it's still early for both of these teams, but I <laughs> it's just these are the games when if you open Twitter. And you see the reaction from fans. You don't know who's winning, and that's kind of, kind of the best and the worst because it's kind of an exhausting thing that us twenty-eight other fan bases have to kind of listen to from these these uh, dramatic New York fans. But I don't blame them. I mean, I know they they care, and as you mentioned, like we could go back and forth, like. I, I you can't feel great about a lot what was going on here. But the Drew Smith thing, like, I don't know. I mean, how many times are we going to do this where the, the umps say, oh, well, it's sticky to me. And the Drew Smith's like, I showed my hands, they'll be official. And he's like laughed at me and said, they're not sticky. Like, what? what h- I don't know how I'm supposed to talk about this anymore. Other than that, clearly, they need to at least have some level of consistency with the umpires. Like, they need to get on some level of the same page. I'm going to keep laughing about it. I don't want Drew Smith to get suspended for 10 games. Like That seems stupid, but I also don't really know the best way to handle this.
1: I totally agree with you. After he got tossed, they cut to him in the dugout, and there was a clip of Drew Smith, Mets reliever, saying, I don't know what the fuck I'm supposed to do. (laughs) And that's how I feel about discussing this topic, because I don't know how to quantify stickiness. I don't know how to touch man's hands. It's basically the umpire going out there, licking his finger, putting it up. (laughs) In the air and going, that boy sticky. Like, well, I don't know. W- remember,
2: these checks are happening even more than they were the first time they start. Like, they are doing them all the time. And so, it's not surprising to me that point oh 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 five percent of the time, an umpire is going to feel a hand and be like, whoa. Like, that's not that surprising to me. But at the same time, I don't know what it really says about where the sport is at or what the Mets are doing or Drew Smith's doing and how it relates to Max Scherzer's sticky hands. Like, I just don't care that much. I really don't. I really don't. I know it's, like, in theory, a spicy... Topic, but it doesn't, that's not what I come out of this game wanting to talk about. I want to talk about Anthony Volpe. I want to talk about the fact that Max Scherzer has just not been a good pitcher. <laughs> Giancarlo Stanton homering at City Field for the 800th
1: time or some yeah. shit. Like, yeah, like, that's what I want to think about.
2: And like the end of the game, like the, just the, the big spot that Marte comes up in and like Clay Holmes, like the Yankees bullpen, which has just bailed them out over and over and over and over. Like it has been quietly one of the best bullpens in baseball. Like, There are interesting things going on with these teams with a lot of anonymous players, which is kind of what makes it, I think, less us less wanting to talk about the game itself because so many of these players involved are just not necessarily, you know, the uh, the marquee names, uh, particularly on the Yankees side, who rolled out an outfield yesterday of Bowers, IKF, and McKinney and (laughs) one. So, like, I just like that's funny, but to me, that's also kind of a microcosm of why the Yankees are where they're at and why they're still somehow 10 games over 500 is that they do find ways to kind of win games. And the Mets have been finding ways to lose them. Absolutely.
1: I have a quick idea here, right, about the stickiness. So it's not a sustainable model to send an old wrinkly pudge king in a black jumpsuit masquerading as an umpire you know, to just touch a hand and say yes or no. You know who has a reputation for developing impressive technologies?
0: You yeah, know who has a that? lot of
1: free time on her hands is Elizabeth Holmes, <laughs> right? She, I, if I'm, mm, what I'm doing, yeah. if I'm MLB, I'm giving Elizabeth Holmes 50 mil in prison and I'm saying, I need you to develop a portable stickiness measurement machine, mm-hmm. okay, that umpires can take, touch the hand, put it in the beep, bop, boop, bop. And it says too sticky
2: or not sticky enough. Hmm. I when we started this podcast, I was like, "How can we invoke Elizabeth Holmes in a positive light?" <laughs> I oh, I here's here's my take of that. There are uh, non-morally corrupt scientists, smart people that could also help us with this. Just thought, just, thought, just throwing it out there. Um, but I see in terms of who has time to do it. You know, okay, that's that's a fair point. Rosin meets Theranos, who says no. Uh, I because say no. I say no. You say no. <laughs>
1: because, last thing on the stickiness, like, part of the reason we don't care is that people have been using stuff forever. As long as we don't have Trevor Bauer using, like, cement
2: on his fucking hands, then I don't care. Uh, let's talk about the Mets and the Yankees still. Oh, Gary Sanchez, former Mets, former Yankee. I just want to take a moment to acknowledge the season that he is having. I believe he's up to six homers now with the Padres, uh, which I believe Austin Nola has nine homers as a Padre since arriving at the deadline two years ago. Gary has invigorated this Padres offense to a hilarious degree. And my favorite thing about this is that this is the third team he's been on this year. He signs with the Giants at the very beginning of the year. He goes to AAA and absolutely sucks. He gets released. The Mets sign him and immediately put him in the lineup. He absolutely signed me. He plays like three games. And then leave it to Preller, who is in absolute desperation mode, who I would have assumed would have signed him in the first place, but I guess was still caught up on not you know, holding the L of the Nola trade and I guess still believing in Camposano or whatever. Uh, here's Gary Sanchez, who is slugging 681 through his first 13 games with the Padres. And another thing where it's like this Padres offense has been so lifeless that any amount of like hot streak or just like hitting it over the fence because with consistency has the entire fan base losing their absolute mind. And we'd love to see it. I love you saying referring to Gary Sanchez as former bet, former Yankee. That's it. That is an outrageous oversimplification of the man's life. <laughs> yes. Former twin, I guess also more recently than the Yankees. I think most people have maybe forgotten about that part. Uh but yeah, Gary. I mean, it's great. Like Gary hot streaks are, are as as delightful. And by the way, if you watch him catch, he's still kind of doing some dumb Gary. Like he still had some defensive moments where it's like, What the fuck are you doing? Um, but that's not really the concern of Padres fans at this point. Uh speaking of bearded ex Yankees
1: taking the baseball world by storm. Aaron Hicks. Oh, my God. So the Yankees release the Yankees basically release Aaron Hicks and they eat twenty seven million dollars remaining on his contract. And the Orioles are like, sure, we'll give it a go. And at least the the story is the Orioles coaches were like, do this one little trick. You know, like you scroll to the bottom of an Internet Web page and it's like, do this one little trick and fix your whole swing. And that's what happened. And Aaron Hicks has been incredible for
2: the Orioles. Um, I'm trying to remember. I read this quote on the podcast about what Elias said about Hicks when they signed him, where he was basically just like, there's stuff you can't see. That is that is why we have brought him in. And it's like, all right, dude, Like, I believe you. Uh, and then he is with a, uh, with a what, with a 1,200 OPS or whatever. He had a monster homer last night. He's got eight walks to seven strikeouts. That kind of thing we sort of expected Hicks maybe could do. But he sure looks like he's having a good time. And it's also one of those things, too, where, like, you joked, oh, the one Aaron Hicks clutch homer is going to be awesome. Well, he's already given you a couple. Um, he's like, he's already given you multiple multiple moments. Like, it can it can end now, and it's already been worth it. He's gotten on base more
1: times or equal. He's gotten on base equal times as an Oriole and as a
2: Yankee this year already. That's right. Incredible. <laughs> In, uh, 11 games. Yeah. For the Orioles. Now I will say though, not that we want to go too deep on this, Ryan O'Hearn is stunning me even more than Aaron Hicks. I'm just going to go ahead and put that out there. Ryan O'Hearn's 992 OPS is um, making me question a lot about the Orioles and just what is possible over there because, holy shit. The Orioles (laughs) hitting cheating lab is outstanding this year. Oh, my God. Anyway, had to acknowledge those. They're much more fun to talk about than whoever is actually playing for the Mets and the Yankees right now. One last thing about it. Did you see at Orioles tweet? Imagine not having Aaron Hicks on your team. <laughs> it's so good. I mean, it's like, and, and right, obviously the Padres are, are just tweeting out everything Gary, every time Gary sneezes. It's, it's great. It's great. Uh, it's, it's, it's wonderful stuff.
1: I hate the narrative of certain guys can't play in the Bronx. Cause I don't think that's true. I think if players are supported and empowered, they can play anywhere by a coaching staff. And I'm not criticizing like the Yankees coaching staff, just the circumstances for these two guys weren't weren't right. But like being in the Bronx has a weight to it. It has a pressure to it. It's like, I wish it wasn't true because it is really cliche. But over time, it does great on guys. Like we saw it with Gary. We saw it with Joey Gallo. We saw it with, with Aaron Hicks. You see it all the time, right? Every year, it feels like there's a player who gets like bullied out of the Bronx and then has success somewhere else. And I think even though the Yankees are good at a lot of player development stuff and getting the most out of like the Jake Bowers's of the world. That organization has yet to really figure out how to take these struggling older players who have high expectations and make them feel comfortable enough to contribute. Jacoby yeah. Ellsbury, right? Is another one
2: Right, guy who, how do you kind of fell on hard times? The guy that's, it's kind of trending in the wrong direction. Whereas like the younger guys, like relatively like Bowers and Calhoun, I mean, they're, they're playing for their job. Like, they, that they. It's, it's different because, like, they know this is their chance to be major leaguers in a way that the other guys, they've already been there, done that, but now it's just, like, exhausting to exist as a Yankee.
1: How do you create the energy of a change of scenery internally, right? That's really difficult to do for any team. In New York, it's even harder because of the pressure from the fan base. I think about, like, the 2021 Giants, and what they were able to do with Brandon Belt and Brandon Crawford and all those guys, where it was like, it felt like a change of scenery for the whole team, but no one left. So that's just something
2: that's on my mind as I watch these former Yankees uh, flourish elsewhere. Let's move on, Jake Mintz, to uh, another player who Yankees fans uh, do not particularly enjoy watching succeed. How about that transition? Carlos Correa. Carlos Correa hit a... Monster walk off home run last night against Devin Williams, who had a rare super clunker, just total, total mess of an outing for Devin Williams. The two uh, middling, I guess the Brewers aren't currently leading the division because the Pirates are, but the two, I guess, de facto favorites in the extremely underwhelming central divisions, we have the Brewers in Minnesota. And Carlos Correa, who has been so underwhelming in his return to Minnesota, is finally heating up. It wasn't just last night. I believe that is his third or fourth homer in the last week or so. He looked great against Toronto. And that swing and that reaction was finally, because he really didn't have anything like this last year. And that was part of just the season that the twins had. That was it. That was the moment we have all kind of been envisioning. It was really freaking cool. I know there are a lot of people that, that don't like Correa no matter what, and that's fine. But uh, we are generally pro-Korea on this pod, and I thought that was freaking sweet because it was just a reminder of the kind of talent that he is and the kind of swings he is capable of when he is right.
1: When he first did the watch tap celebration, like the It's My Time celebration, it was him kind of saying, when he did it in the playoffs, I think against Eduardo Rodriguez, it was like, "I it, it's always my time. Like, it's me. When he did it this time, it was like, it's about damn time. It's my time. Like, I've been terrible. Like I'm glad I'm eating up now. Like <laughs> yeah, it was about now, time. Now it's it was,
2: time. No, it was about time. I think is probably what he was going for there. Um, but yeah, no, it was, it was it was cool, man. And then you know, not not a lot of uh, homers uh, hit off of the Devin Williams airbender to the second deck. So you know, you're you're putting a g- good swing on it there. And honestly, like it's not. It hasn't just been Correa. Like this Twins offense has truly been uh, abysmal. And it's not going to take much to, again, not quite the same way was like, you know, add Gary to the, to the Padres, but even more so because the Padres have at least had Soto and Tatis has been good. But this Twins lineup right now, like, they're being carried by freaking Donovan Solano. Like, I don't even, I mean, I know that, that Buxton has, of course, been hurt and Gallo has certainly cooled off since the beginning, but they need something. I mean, they, this is, I know that Correa could be better than this and, and this is, you know, his WRC Plus is still 98, but we're trending in the right direction.
1: There have been some signs of life from a couple of the younger players in Minnesota Mm -hmm. between Alex Kirilov and Edouard Julien, who's been really good since coming back up. Royce Lewis has kind of held water since he got promoted. And so I like this team needs to win the division. They have to like the fact that they're not running away with it even more is really embarrassing. They're so much better than a lot of these other teams. And I think that all it's going to take is like three weeks of the
2: offense returning to where they should be. And they'll create some separation. I agree uh, because Cleveland over the last couple of weeks has shown signs of figuring it out and Minnesota should be up by 10 games right now and they're not. So like that's, this is an opportunity that should really, really not go to waste for, for the twins here. Cause I agree like they've clearly figured out the pitching. So the pitching has been marvelous. Pitching has been as impressive as the hitting has been underwhelming. And uh, hopefully Correa can start to kind of turn that more in the proper direction. Uh, all right, Jake. We have one more topic before we get to an email, and that is something that if we did the show yesterday, we probably would have led off with. Uh, but then the A's uh, beat the Rays for a seventh consecutive win, and a lot of other stuff happened in the Coliseum, so that's why we started the show with it. But Jake, Gunnar Henderson and Corbin Carroll, the two number uh, two top two prospects coming into the season this year, by most most uh, most outlets, I would say. Both of them just won their respective leagues player of the week, not rookie of the week, player of the week last uh, last week. And they are both just completely on fire. Corbin Carroll had another home run last night, uh, as did Gunner with the Grand Slam. The Gunner Grand Slam last night, who, who do you want to talk about first? Because they're both, they are clearly interrelated, but they're also both different, very different kinds of players. So who would you like to begin with? Let's begin with Corbin Carroll
1: who is a very unique player. He is unique in that you can go to a baseball game as a neutral, casual fan for one night and you can leave knowing that Corbin Carroll is a special player because on any given evening, he'll do something that looks different. He moves different at the outfield, right? His swing looks a lot different than a lot of players. It's kind of almost the, like the... Japanese style, like kind of pulling out, not all the way Ichiro, Mm -hmm. but like he's definitely um, moving his body towards first a lot as he swings. Mm -hmm. You just see that it's unique and it's different and it's special. And he has highlighted that since day one. And when the Diamondbacks gave him this enormous extension before he even played a game in the, you know, a a number of games in the big leagues, I know he came up at the end of last year. It was the type of thing where it's like, yeah, this is risky, but the Diamondbacks probably had like a bunch of conversations with the kid and they're like, oh, he's the real deal. Like Sometimes (laughs) scouting is not hard. Sometimes it's a conversation and three days at at the park. What is hard and what is impressive is finding a kid like that out of a Seattle area high school when he's 18 years old. Giving him an extension at 22, like that's just, that's whatever. For me, it's the fact that they identified this kid coming out of high school. Right, that they had enough trust in the bat after he was facing kids presumably
2: throwing 81 miles an hour in Washington State. Sure. Well, and the thing, and he was unbelievable on the showcase circuit. I have a piece going up today uh, at Fox Sports all about Corbin Carroll, and the main thing I, I was kind of harping on is the power is is shocking to kind of witness because he's listed at 5'10, 165, and the kind of exit velos he's producing <laughs> for a player that maybe he's 175 or 185. Like he's he is not big. And just the, the wrist strength and the bat speed that he's producing against both lefties and righties and powering balls to all fields is, is kind of shocking. It's really – there's very few players like that, uh, that that are in the league, not to mention that he's one of the five fastest players in baseball. So that, that is why we are talking about someone that's very unique. This is a good transition to Gunner because you look at them and like, oh, well, of course, the top two prospects in baseball – are balling out. Like this is the whole point, right? This is why we do prospect lists because we're, we want the people who watch these players at younger ages, whether it's in amateur ball or whether it's in the minors to say, these guys are going to be some of the best players in baseball. And here they are, some of the best players in baseball. And you joke before we start recording, like, wow, people are, people are good at this. People are good at this. But you also mentioned, again, how do you identify that out of high school? How do you identify that out of a tiny private school, even in Alabama, which is where Gunnar Henderson came from? And you don't have to look farther than the rest of the high school players that were drafted at the top of the 2019 first round, right? I mean, yes, Bobby Witt Jr. was, was of course, notably, you know, the guy who went second overall, and I, I still believe in him. Riley Green, we'll see. I think, he, I think Riley Green can be good. C.J. Abrams, right? Brett Beatty, we're still waiting on. Keone Cavaco, who's probably not going to make it to the big leagues, was drafted before <laughs> Corbin Carroll. I mean, there's a lot of high school... This is the Volpe draft, right? And we know that Volpe has... He's slowly figuring it out, but it's not clicking this quickly. It's not supposed to be this easy the way that Carroll and Henderson made it look last year and are making it look uh, this year. Henderson went, you know, at the top of the second round of this draft as well. So it's it's not that simple. And so to be able to identify those guys and develop them is really amazing.
1: Henderson... They're they're so different, dude. Because Henderson just like big boy go far,
2: right? Like, <laughs> but he's not he's they... not huge though. He's not he's clearly ridiculously strong. We saw it with the the homer to Utah Street, the grand slam last night though. That was if you want to show what backspinning a baseball looks like, I couldn't believe that it carried to that degree. It was it was this, and Kiermaier still looked looked like he thought he had a play on it, but that ball just kept going. It was wild. So when I wrote
1: about. Masataka Yoshida earlier this year I had a conversation with Alex Cora Red Sox manager about where Yoshida's power comes from and he talked a lot about not just his huge tree trunk legs but Yoshida's innate ability to backspin a baseball Mm -hmm. and that is a very difficult thing to teach and to learn and to develop right because a lot of it has to do with swing path Albert Pujols is the goat at this right his swing was perfectly engineered to backspin a baseball but it's such an important thing that is so hard to learn, and just Gunner Henderson has it. He can that ball he the grand slam he hit out looked like a fly out to center, right? And the ball just took off to left center because it's backspinning so much it stays on plane up in the air. He's he's remarkable, man. And he was super passive to start the season yeah, at the so plate, I'm- like he wasn't being aggressive enough mm-hmm. to base to 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 spots mm-hmm. in the zone. And now he is, and it's I think it's starting to click for him. Uh, and he's a great, great at bat tool,
2: and that's what we had been talking about earlier in the season. It's like how worried are we about Gunner? And it, like, not really, because the at bats are still pretty good. But it's like, dude, you have this power, you have this incredible swing. You need to use it, because otherwise, you're just going to keep striking out and you're going to keep walking and not really impacting the, you know, impacting the game on offense. Through May 21st, Gunner was hitting 192-331, again showing how much he was still getting on base. 354, 354 slug through May 21st. Since then, which is, I think, what, uh, 20 games, I would say? He's hitting 377, 421, 774 <laughs> with, with six homers, uh, two doubles, 1195 OPS over his last uh, yeah, 16 games. So it's wild. Obviously, the Orioles' offense was already pretty good before that, but he's really added a, a, new, a new level that is amazing and they're both, you know, 22. They're both. So that, that's, this is it. I mean, these two guys are going to be, and, and the most exciting part about all of it is this could have been happening on two teams that were projected to win 78 games and it would have been awesome. But instead they are two teams that are might win 90 games and that makes it all the more exciting. hundred percent. Let's do an email and
1: then we will get on out of here. Jordan, people know about an immaculate inning, but what about an unimmaculate inning? This email comes from Logan. He says, hey guys, loved your last mailbag pod, especially all the strategy on designated milk drinkers. If you didn't listen to that one, you're confused right now. A baseball thought experiment I've been having is recently is this. If an immaculate inning is three outs on non-strikes, what could an in-immaculate inning look like? I'd love to hear your takes on what that could be. Thanks, Logan. Jordan. What comes to mind for you?
2: I, I love this, right? Uh, first of all, immaculate innings. Immaculate innings are, I know some, Aaron Goldsmith, I know of our, our Mariners broadcaster, obsessed with immaculate innings. He, when you get the first, some Mariners pitcher has the first six or seven strikes, you can hear him giddy on the mic <laughs> for the possibility. So I know people really care about it. But what's, what's the opposite, right? What, what is the worst possible thing? Well, the easiest thing is, I mean, to me, the unimmaculate inning has to end with you getting taken out right or is it an inning that is completed like i'm i'm curious is this an inning that is disastrous or is is it still an inning that you complete and get all 3 outs but it is unimmaculate? what do you think so it's not an inning if you don't get 3 outs great point great point great point so you do have to get 3 outs okay so we're implying we are we are we are assuming that we are completing the 3 outs so what is the least the least impressive way you can complete 3 outs I would say it could be just three balls scorched at like one fifteen to all three outfielders. That would be one. That would be one way. But in some ways, that's run immaculate robberies. defense. Three run, three home run robberies in a row. <laughs> three home run robberies in a row. But again, you would remember that as as it, but that is a good one, right? Because in, in theory, you have allowed three home runs and, and completed the inning. What are some other ways that would be the opposite so, of immaculate? In my mind
1: sixteen straight balls to start the inning.
2: Okay. Yes. Yes. Sixteen consecutive well, balls. Oh well, no no. Do, well, okay, yeah. Yeah. For a run. This is for you know, a for run. A straight, oh, I, I thought it was to load the bases and then still get okay. Okay. You, no. no, no.
1: <laughs>
2: sixteen straight balls
1: to to start to start the inning. Mm-hmm. And for whatever reason your manager
2: is like, <laughs> leave him out there. Like, okay. Hey use a lot of our bullpen last night we're just going to have to we're just going to have to eat. 16 straight balls i wonder if that's ever been like i'm trying okay, to that's certainly happened in college but i'm trying okay, but to wonder okay you still if that's need outs
1: you still need outs okay yeah, so no, 16 straight I know. I know. balls I and i think the play that is the least impressive for a pitcher right is when they allow a hit And yet outs are made on the bases by toot blanning, by making mistakes as a base runner. And so what I'm envisioning is like the bases are loaded after 16 consecutive balls and a ball is hit in the gap. Okay. Okay. Mm -hmm. The runner on third like falls down (laughs) running home and is passed by both of the runners... Both of them. Both, <laughs> Both the runners, runners are passing them. Both oh, my the God. And somehow all
2: three runners are tagged out on the play. You're basically asking for an honest, like, basically a triple play incurred by the offense. Correct. So like re, like running into a triple play is what you're hoping for. After Correct. walking, the bases loaded and walking in a run. And then allowing a hit. Yes, 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 yes. Because I think you could do the 16 straight balls or even 12 straight balls, you know, followed by a 3-0 count. They swing after 19 straight balls and they pop it out. And then maybe the next one is like a really unlucky liner to first base where the first baseman just steps on second and doubles the guy or steps on first and doubles the guy off. Um, I think It makes that me think about
1: option. a great baseball situation I really, really love is like tie game late runners on second and third reliever allows a single runner on third scores runner on second is thrown out trying to score Mm. and it's like you're losing but there was just a great defensive play and the pitcher is like pissed as shit and the outfielders on cloud nine
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Also, again, the other obvious point, which I think may have came up in other previous mailbag scenarios is there's probably some pitch clock related answers that would have been interesting here. That makes me think that like, oh, no, I guess that doesn't really make sense. I'm like, if we could get some some catchers interference involved, but that's really more helping the batter. I don't know. I I do think that a lot of balls in a row, because again, when we think about immaculate, we think about, and also we think about just perfect games. We think about clean, right? We think about that. It is like a spotless inning. It is, it is very, very pristine in the scorebook and everything is very straightforward. And a lot of balls in a row is not that, but there's also the experience of when you're watching an immaculate inning, it's like, Oh my God, is this
1: dude going to throw another strike? And that's what I want the opposite of like, Oh my God, is this dude going
2: to throw another ball? Which also makes me think like hit by pitches also would probably help here. Wild pitches maybe. Oh, maybe like a wild pitch like situation where it's like a bunch of balls and then you a bunch of drop third strikes. But no, I guess that's still a strikeout. Ooh, ooh, I got it. I got it. I got it. Okay. 16 straight balls. You really okay. want that run to, to come in. You really want. Run's you don't even just in. want to load the bases. You want to walk a run in. Okay. Got you
1: got to walk a run in for it to be unimmaculate. Okay. And then three consecutive pass balls in which the runners are
2: thrown out at home. Like yes, the pitcher I think that's what, at home. yes, yes. Thank you. Yes, yes. Perfect ricochets. Perfect ricochets, and that's how you like get the out pitcher of
1: the has end. no idea where the like, ball. is The pitcher going, literally
2: it, has thrown zero strikes and gets out of it, but also allows a run. But you could, you could. No, actually, it's. I think it's actually even better is you don't walk in a run. It's, it's the 12 straight balls, bases loaded, and then three straight pass balls where all three runners try to advance and score, and they all get thrown out. So it's a scoreless inning. It's a scoreless inning, but they've thrown zero strike. That's it. We did it. We did it, Joe. We figured it out. All right. Great work, team. Thank you to Logan uh, who emailed us this. This is a great question.
1: I want to give a quick shout-out actually here before we go.
2: Um immaculate grid have you been have you Mm. Do you know what i'm talking about i i yes i'm vaguely familiar but 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 pump it because i i i want to i want to hear more a big listener of our show
1: sent this to us Uh, i believe this person listens to a lot of them so shouts out didn't get a name but if you go to immaculategrid.com it's like a very fun daily baseball game so i love like the new york times crossword puzzle and the spelling bee and whatever and this is kind of like the baseball version of that i know we had like Wardle which became MLB Pickle and that one's great too this one is more like historical and you can kind of do it a little bit quicker and requires a kind of a different knowledge set and it's super fun I've been playing it every day highly recommend checking out immaculategrid.com
2: there you go uh definitively immaculate not unimmaculate (laughs) like what Logan is describing you can email us at baseballbarbacast at gmail.com that's b-a-r-b-cast uh thank you all for those wonderful emails, we'll hopefully get some more of those soon. But we have to end this podcast because Jake has to fly to Omaha. I'm flying to Omaha later. We will be uh, back on Friday. We will be in the same place recording a baseball cast from Omaha, Nebraska. Looking forward to that. Uh, but until then, thank you to Chris Tyler for producing this here podcast as always. Thank you, Jake Mintz, for co-hosting. Thank you, Kyle Madsen, for joining us you talk about the reverse, reverse boycott. Uh, and until next time, have a good next couple days. Serious
0: XM Podcasts.